Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in the Lobby Cafe in Hollywood on really the border between Thai Town and Little Armenia. And I'm here with someone who's lived in several different cities, and I'm going to ask her how the people in the different cities she's lived in pronounce her names. Pretty consistently correctly, which is Dahlia. And your last name? Schweitzer. So how is that? I would have thought that Tel Aviv or Berlin would have done that differently from Los Angeles. Uh, good question. In Tel Aviv, Dahlia Schweitzer is how they would say it. So you're right, there's a, there's a difference. So there's a difference in the last name. Yeah. And in, in Berlin? Dahlia Schweitzer. Really? Same mm-hmm. in, and in LA, obviously, that's how yeah. we in the United States would and say it. And maybe it's just because I pronounce it first and then they mimic. Right, 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 right. Um, the variations come in how they spell my name. That's where they yes. get creative. Yes, because your consistent. Your that's interesting because your first name is spelt in the way the flower is spelled. Exactly. So for many people, the assumption would be a different kind of a. Well, first day you'd be you might be dahlia. Or they. Or well, does anybody do that or no? Um, sometimes, and then I correct them. Uh, but sometimes they leave out the H. Do men or women prefer being corrected by you, would you say? I have no idea. That's a fascinating question. In terms of their reactions. <laughs> Israelis never like being corrected, surely. Um, I mean, as a national trait characteristic. I feel like I do it with a little bit of charm. Whereas Germans love being told they're bad, don't they? Uh, I don't know. That's actually a good question. I don't know. I think, especially being a teacher, you sort of learn how to be very charmingly assertive (laughs) and so you kind of learn how to put people in their place without emasculating them too much (laughs) now why don't we start with teaching uh, and then get on to some of the other things that you've done and are doing okay Uh, last time you and I met we had a bit of a chat about teaching which really interested me and I got lots of ideas and stimulus from chatting to you you're doing some teaching at the moment tell us a bit about that could you uh, I'm teaching at two different schools in Los Angeles. I teach at the Art Institute in, of Hollywood, and I teach at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in downtown L.A. Um, at both schools, I'm in the sort of general education humanities department. Uh, every term, I teach a different mix of classes, but they're all sort of core, core classes based on um, literature, writing, art, that right. kind of thing. And... You sent me the other day this wonderful PDF of a wordless storyboard, we would call it, except mm-hmm. it was, I guess, a cartoon review of a Raymond Chandler novel. Oh, thank yes. you so much. Honey? I'm good, thank you. Oh, Here comes to Honey's Tea. Um, and you're teaching some things that happen to interest me a lot at the moment. Yes, I'm teaching a great class this quarter, which is the one that the, the Raymond Chandler PDF comes from, which is a detective class where we focus on the the detective fiction set in Los Angeles. And we um, compare it as well to film. And just sort of look at how the the archetype of the detective has evolved over the last 80 years. Why do you think L.A. is such fertile terrain for the noir-like story? And I should say that I asked this question on a day when we've got stormy weather and it's fantastic outside. You feel as though you're in a real city. (laughs) It's stormy and the palm trees are blowing and bending in the wind and all of that. What is it about this place that's been so fecund for that genre for so many decades now and for film noir? Well, as I well. could talk about, we could do a separate podcast entirely <laughs> talking about that, but uh, to make it brief, um, Los Angeles really is the perfect city for the detective story um, because the detective story really kind of came about in the post World War II era when there was all this kind of cultural anxiety, the, you know, the, the trauma uh, from the war combined with all these changes that were happening in the urban landscape. And Los Angeles really is the archetypal suburban sprawl with no city center where we feel you know, kind of lost. We're never quite sure where the action is. And so we really need the detective to navigate the city for us and we see it through his eyes. We see him travel from you know, the homes of the very rich to the homes of the very poor, all the different ethnic groups. You know, I mean, Los Angeles really is you know, almost like our worst nightmare when you think of what a city should look like in the, the way that it's sort of fragmented and spread out and disjointed and, and solitary. 
And what's fascinating is, as, as I said, we are at, virtually on the cusp of Thai town and Little Armenia, which have a certain amount of interaction, but not so much. Not so much. Um, I guess one of them, shall we say, is more involved in organized crime than the <laughs> other one is, and they do it through car washes. But you didn't hear that on this podcast <laughs> from either of the people who were speaking. Uh, in any event, I'm, glad I, I'm so glad I said that. So you're doing this teaching... That's exciting, and I also am lucky enough to know that you have a book coming out soon. In a year. In academic terms, yes, that's soon. soon. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the book. Um, the book is about a movie called Office Killer, which uh, was directed by the photographer Sidney Sherman. And an interesting segue from our earlier point is that the movie is a little bit of a neo-noir, and it's shot in a very noir style and there's a lot of references to kind of um, archetypal noir characters in the film. Uh, but it's this kind of noir, black comedy uh, with a you know, dash of horror. Now, my confession at this point is that when you mentioned this to me the other day, I didn't n know anything about this movie, and I'm a huge fan of Cindy Sherman's. In fact, as I think I told you, my sort of screen picture on my computer at work is of her and lots of people assume that that must be my girlfriend but in your of, dreams in my dreams and of course how many how many cindy shermans are there um can only, one even recognize her for sure uh it's interesting i was just reading an article yesterday that was talking about a little bit of a controversy in some people's minds because she started using uh digital manipulation in her images and one of her sort of initial claim to fame was that she, you know, she could transform herself purely based on analog methods. Uh, and so some people feel like it's kind of violating the terms of the agreement that she's using this digital manipulation. Interesting. Interesting. This is like, you know, analogic makeup is the real femininity, but digital exactly. makeup is not. Right. <laughs> Take a jump. Sorry. <laughs> this is people jeering Bob Dylan when he electrifies his guitar. Yes. I mean, I'm all for cultural activism, but I think when we're trying to get at the notion of plasticity of femininity, right. which is what Cindy Sherman is on about, it's a bit rich to say there's a correct plasticity and then well, there's an incorrect plasticity. Especially considering, well, what's your take? You well, especially considering that basically every image you see in a magazine has been photoshopped to a certain degree. It's part of the cultural vernacular. Every poster that we see. Right. I mean, I did a podcast with Anne Kelly, who mm -hmm. runs a feminist arts website and you know Anne makes her living uh, to support the work of the website by doing things like touching up posters so that movies will be advertised commodified through beauty right. but of course what that means is women's hips become thinner their breasts become larger they half of them becomes more like a man right. the other half becomes more like a woman right neither half is in any sense real and the no. cyborgian creatures right? right so in any event so and she's not the only famous person involved with this picture no that's i think what makes it even more intriguing that the movie's sort of been ignore, ignored by the art and academic communities at large um, the movie was produced executive produced by james Seamus who's produced, you know, Brokeback Mountain and The Ice Storm and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I mean, he has, you know, legendary list of titles. Was he involved in Crouching Tiger? Probably. I'm, I have a violet. useless memory. Right. Yes, <laughs> um, but he is, you know, at the top of the sort of indie picture market. Yeah. Uh, Christine Vachon and her partner, Pamela Coffer, were the producers of the movie. Um, Tom Kalin was involved with the writing process. Todd Haynes put sort of finishing touches on the dialogue. Uh, of course, Cindy Sherman was, you know, involved. Um, Gene Triplehorn is in it. Carol Kane is in it. Molly Ringwald is in it. I mean, it's there are a lot of name dropping. Except you and me. Yes. <laughs> Which is why it's, it's sort of. Mis I mean, basically, the story yeah. is is that Miramax bought the film without having seen it, and then they watched it, and then they sort of said, "We don't know what to do with this because, in James Seamus's words, it's a tweener, so it's in between genres." So it's not funny enough to be a comedy, it's not scary enough to be a horror, it's not dramatic enough to be a women's picture, it's somewhere kind of in between, it's like a Venn diagram. <laughs> and, uh, and so Miramax said, well, we don't know how to market this, and they just kind of stuck it on a shelf. And that's sadly what happened. Wow, that's a fascinating story in itself. Yeah. Now, what inspired you to write a whole book about a largely unknown film, albeit one articulated around one of the great artists of the 20th century, 
and a stack of other incredibly renowned filmmakers? I think a, a couple different reasons. One of them is just because it came... Whoa. Um, one of them is it just... <laughs> this plate brought to you by Cindy Sherman. Uh, one of them was just because I felt like it was this void in the conversation about her work, that it was just this very conspicuous absence um, in the you know the repository of information about this woman, where there's I mean there's so many books published about her photographs and just a sort of endless exposition about you know her images, but then nothing about the film. So that alone sort of uh, intrigued me. And then um, the movie itself I think is phenomenal. And one of the things that I think is especially interesting about the movie is there are lots of movies that could really take place at any time. You have the core narrative. And the movie could be set, you know, 1993, 2003, um, 2013. It doesn't really matter. It's a story of, you know, love or heartbreak or whatever. And Office Killer is so uniquely of its era that it couldn't be set any other time but the late 90s. I mean, it, just, it wouldn't work. It just, it, it's all these different factors kind of coming together to create this moment. And to me, that's interesting as sort of a, you know, pop culture historian to look at this movie and by looking at this movie, understand what's happening in America in the late 90s, mm, which absolutely. I think, and a lot of the major changes that were happening in the late 90s have set the tone for how things are today. So I think we can sort of better understand how things are today by looking at what was going on then. Can you, I don't want to interrupt you too much from your tea, which one did you get by the way? Uh, the white tea. Yes, I've had that before. Not here, this is my first time here. I've never known why it's called white tea. I don't either. It doesn't look terribly white. <laughs> no, it looks like green tea. It's like being told that there are things called white people, most of whom don't look terribly white. No. Robin Wood, you know, the old yes, uh -huh. Hitchcock auteur-style writer. I, I mention him in my book, because he's written about horror. Right. Indeed he has, actually. Uh, one of his remarks in what I thought was not great as a claim, but was vaguely interesting phenotypically, was that he thought he was pink. Right. And this was partly about having come out as gay having been in a oh, conventional marriage with children, but it right. was also about what he saw as the shade of his skin. In any event, moving right along, from now that I've talked about what all Israelis are like and how there are no <laughs> white people, let's just see if I can make other, any other inane generalizations <laughs> in the next, say, minute. <coughs> so, what is it, do you think, that was going on in the 90s, late 90s, that this captures? that we see the detritus of today? Um, one of the, the major things that I discuss is technology. Because mm -hmm. in the late 90s was when technology was really starting to become ubiquitous. You know, I th that was when I got my first email address. You know, it was <laughs> when uh, people were, you know, we had the, the concept of working from home, you know, which was still fairly new. And so this idea of people sort of disappearing from the workplace uh, to you know, to go home and work, you know, work from there, work remotely, to work anonymously. Um, you had the rise of the cubicle. You know, sales of the cubicle shot up exponentially during the mid to late '90s because you had, you know, people were no longer needing to interact with each other. You sat in a little box at work, and everything went through your computer. Um, and so the late '90s was really when this kind of cultural shift was happening, and obviously we see where that's gotten us today. Mm -hmm. And of course it's also the high point, the high watermark of Clintonian neoliberalism here in the US, isn't it? Yes. Where the idea is that you can be the master or mistress of your own destiny. Right. Yeah? Yeah, so technology liberates at the same time as it disempowers. Right, 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 right. Now, we can go back to the book in, in a bit and I hope, I'm already going to ask you to, if you'll come back to the pod when the book comes out. So of we course. can do another conversation then about it. We can come back to the book later today, but I'd like to go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary. Where were you in the late 90s? What were you up to? I mean, you were barely alive. <laughs> I graduated college in 98. Uh -huh. So I had just moved to New York, and it was sort of the real height of the dot-com era. It sure So was. technology was really exploding. Silicon you know, Alley. Silicon Alley, Razorfish. I mean, it was... Yeah. I just, you know, I remember the sense of freshness and possibility. Everybody was looking for venture capitalists and investors, and everybody was, you know, starting their own their own business. And it was um, this really interesting time to be in New York. Uh, I wasn't interested in that side of it, but I was definitely interested in the potentials of digital media and technology as an art form. And that's what sort of that's what pulled me into it. And so my first job in New York, I worked for the Museum of the Moving Image working with the curator of digital media to set up um, 
digital media installations in the museum and part of my job was often to go to these kind of digital media conventions and just sort of see what was happening with again like from, more from the artistic standpoint than the business standpoint but in that at that era you know art and business were really kind of hand in hand yes did it feel as utopic at the museum of the moving image as it, which was in Brooklyn, uh, Astoria. Astoria. Sorry, God, but, what am you know, I saying? Outer boroughs are all the same. I know. <laughs> Once you leave people, the island, know, who knows where those people live? <laughs> yeah. What they do? Sorry, in Queens. Uh, was there the same sense of utopia at the Museum of the Moving Image as there was in these startups with all their IPO fantasies and instantaneous billionaires and so on? Um, it wasn't as utopic in the sense that nobody was getting rich working at the museum. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> what am I thinking? So you didn't have this, uh, this feeling of sort of infinite financial possibility. But it was still an exciting time because all these different things were happening and technology was sort of, you know, it was the buzzword. Uh, and so you felt like you were, you were watching things happen as they were happening. And was the museum open to new advances? Very much. It had been something that was articulated around an earlier technology. Um, yes, because they had, I mean, they had the film program there was, was totally a separate entity. So the digital media department, which was, you know, it was tiny. And when you're tiny, you, you can be elastic and organic and, you know, evolve rapidly. So the digital media department had a lot of freedom to kind of try new things. And we had uh, a gallery space that was called the Computer Space Gallery where we would have, you know, old um, kind of arcade games, you know, with like, you know, the first Pac-Man game or whatever, but then next to it we might have some cutting-edge interactive um, experience designed by some student at MIT. Uh, and we could, you know, we could swap those out easily. So, you know, we had a new video game came out that was, in, for some reason, cutting-edge, and we would swap that in. Or we'd have, you know, some interactive flash animation, and we'd swap that in. So there was a lot of flexibility to kind of uh, keep up with what was happening. That's exciting. And were you doing other things while you were there as well? Were you involved in the art scene, performance scene, out uh, beyond um, your work at I, the I'm trying to think. I think, yes, I started my first band when I was working at the museum. So I became involved in the, uh, the musical community in New York, in the East Village and everything. Uh, it was interesting because what first drew me to digital media was that I thought I wanted to be a, uh, a digital media artist. And, you know, I'd been a, a photographer uh, up until that point, and I was sort of frustrated with the two-dimensional photographic canvas, the plane, and I, I liked the, the three-dimensionality that came with interactive computer art. And that was what initially pulled me into it, but then I realized that even though it was interactive and whatever, it was still limited because you had the interface. You know, you still had the computer monitor and the mouse and whatever. And so I kind of regressed and went old school. And that's one of the things that drew me to music was because in music there's no interface. You know, there, there, it's, it is fully three-dimensional. Yeah. And so I sort of uh, moved away from the digital media and moved more towards the music and the performance. So tell us something about that. You're in the East Village, which was going through one of its routine renaissances slash yes. clearances. <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> Which I think it does every like five years or something. Um, what would you like to know about those early days? Well, the, the music that you were playing, the performance right. places and experiences, because one of the sad things about the different epochs of the East right. Village, we're talking about um, downtown New York, um, this op for people who are outside the country, sure. you've probably all heard of Greenwich Village. Basically, the thing called Greenwich Village is very tiny. It's mm -hmm. like a couple of blocks, and then there's a big thing called the East Village and a big thing called the West Village. And the right. East Village is, you know, the Ramones fans in the 70s. A little bit Her dirtier Her than Her the West Village. Patti Smith, Needle Parks, uh, urban grittiness, fun cafes, yeah. great bars, lots of people who sometimes look very happy and then sometimes look very miserable. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, I, I lived in the East Village for five years and pretty much up until the end I loved every minute of it and I loved the energy of that community and the, you know the mix of the artists and the musicians and you know when my band first started out we were very kind of post-punk um, and then got more and more electronic as sort of my musical styles um, evolved. So in the beginning it was, you know, typical guitar, bass, drums, vocals, and then I added a keyboardist, and then I added a drum machine, and then, and then by the time I moved to Berlin, it really became 90% electronic. 
And the name of the band? Galvanized. Can people see or hear you in those places where That's, we see and hear It's people? funny because nowadays everything's archived, right? There's a YouTube video of everything. Um, but And I have galvanized footage on VHS, you know, because this is another era. But I think, I don't think that there's anything online. I may be wrong, but it was sort of, that was before the era of YouTube and camera phones and all that. Okay, but... You have a fabulous website. What's it called again? This is Dahlia.com. Fantastic website. Why don't you have some of this done stuff transferred from analog to digital so that you can have it on your site? Is, uh, is this an, an, an earlier you? That it's you, an earlier me. You're not so interested in archiving as That's it true. Yeah. It would probably be a yeah. little bit embarrassing. <laughs> and I feel like especially as a teacher and a role model that uh, it might be healthy to... You know, to have to have left some stuff gathering dust on my shelf, <laughs> um, but they can see videos of myself from my sort of solo years on YouTube. Um, if you go to YouTube.com/slash This Is Dahlia, uh, they can see videos of myself. Right. But I don't think there's anything from the from, band from days. Galvanized. Okay. Yeah. So the main thing during those five years is that you're at the museum during the day. Um, I was at the museum during the day for the f uh, for two years. For two that was years. my first job, okay. and then I decided that I wanted to move to the for-profit sector. Uh, you mean you, does that mean I wanted to make some money instead meant, of starving? <laughs> it meant I wanted to make some money instead of starving, and it also meant that I was interested to in um, in kind of just moving in a direction where there were different priorities. Like I was interested in in, in selling stuff and branding and marketing, and that was. Um, obviously not a component of my job at the museum. So I got a job working for the company that does all of L'Oreal's online ventures. Oh, I'm and a spokesman for L'Oreal. I thought you were too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was on their website for a time. When really? I, did a, I designed a mini site for Feria Hair Color, and they wanted to position Feria as being sort of hip and edgy. And who were hipper and edgier than my friends and myself? Nobody. Clearly. So there was a series. So I think it was like ten weeks, and every week there was an upload of photos, before and after photos of someone that used Feria with the little bio and stuff. And so they were all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and what was great about the color that you got with Feria? Uh, Feria has very bright, rich tones that are sort of brighter and richer than most of what's on the market. And so it appeals to this kind of, you know, edgy punk uh, clientele. Right. Brighter They're not as conservative. My hair color? Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Mr. Natural bites the dust again. So, okay, so you, you go and work for them, but by night. Nights and weekends, I had my alter ego. Yeah. So I'd go to my corporate job, sit through my PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> uh, and then nights and weekends, be jumping around East Village stages, scantily clad. Uh, shouting out my punk rock lyrics. Now, what was the, the the punk rock lyrics and the scantily clad and the movement towards electronica? How do they all articulate, or are they quite separate things? Uh, no, I think I've always sort of been interested in exploring images, um, depictions of sort of strong, independent, sexual women, and sort of yeah. uh, showing you know how you can be sexy without being passive. Um, Impossible. Sorry. <laughs> I mean. I'm at my most sexy when I'm completely passive, I'm sure of it. Well, you're, you're a man, so your masculine energy by virtue is that you're going to be sexy while being powerful. Oh, I can feel my stomach getting smaller every time you say it. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, the typical stereotype is, you know, for female pop stars to be, you know, sexy and accessible in a very non-threatening way. And I was interested in sort of complicating that. Now, I, the, the M word, Madonna, yes. was still very powerful in those days, perhaps not so much now, but right. in the late 80s, early 90s, and on into the late 90s, she was one of those people who seemed to play with that. Absolutely. But the question was where parody and pastiche met, right. and where citation became emulation, and whether in the eyes of the conventional male gaze, right. she wasn't troping or mocking uh, she simply was. Right. Um, I think with Madonna, a lot of people have sort of, have never gotten her jokes when she's made them. Mm. I think there's more humor to what she does than people kind of give her credit for. At the same time, I wouldn't say that everything that she does is parody. Um, I think there's irony going on, um, and some parody. 
but I think you know throughout her entire career, and I've you know I, I mentioned her in my classes because even though as you say she might not be as the, the the M word might not be as powerful now as it was, I think she's still very relevant for people that are sort of learning how to understand visual iconography because she's one of the best, um, especially in you know the pop music arena. And I think you know throughout her entire body of work, she's really complicated the way that we think about sexuality, identity, and gender. Well, my feeling is that one could draw some kind of line. I don't know right. how, how accurate it would be. And call me up if I've not got it right. You could where you would have Jean Harlow, absolutely, Mae West, uh, in very different people physically. Right. Jean Harlow, Mae West, um, Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich. I don't know, Marilyn Monroe, Absolutely. Madonna, and I don't think you get any of those people without the ones who come before. Totally agree. And then probably Lady Gaga would be somebody mm -hmm. borrowing from that iconography in certain ways. But sure. each person enriches it along not, not only out of their own talents, which right. are prodigious, but out of the way in which they're produced by others as well as right. themselves. Is that I completely reason? agree. And I think... Um, there's something, so Madonna, one of the things that Madonna has always been excellent at is the sort of the collage, you know, and she's, she's not so much a generator of original ideas as a generator of original ways to repurpose previously existing ideas and imagery. And she's really built her career on a very savvy, keen eye and her ability to kind of, you know, repurpose. And I think there's actually something really interesting happening right now where we had, so Madonna kind of did her thing and then Lady Gaga came and very obviously borrowed from that heavily, heavily, heavily. And the gay men are so crucial as borrowed items, yes, props. right, totally. They kind of come along for the ride. Mm. But then what's interesting mm. now mm. is I don't mm. know if you've seen some of Madonna's newest um, promotional mm. campaigns, but with her new uh, album, one of the things that she's doing, which is sort of fascinating, is she's referencing herself. I didn't know that. Yes. So it's kind of like, you know, we have Lady Gaga copying Madonna, and Madonna kind of comes along and says, well, I do everything better, so I'm going to reference myself, and I'm going to do a better job than you did. So, for instance, um, you know, some of her, her like, uh, her video for Girl Gone Wild is this incredible pastiche of her videos for erotica, um, human nature, and Vogue. And, and then, you know, she's released now this perfume called Truth or Dare, and the ad that she made for, which also, again, references early Madonna, and then the ad that she made for it is a total reference of her um, erotica days. So she's in this really interesting place where instead of, it's almost like she's achieved so much in her career, she no longer has to go back and, you know, reference Marilyn or whatever, but she's now referencing herself. And in terms of going back, Ten years, a little more, really, uh, to your time in the East Village uh, as a woman performer. What were the ways in which you were seeking both to engage traditional notions of female sexuality, but also question, complicate, complexify, and enrich them? What were you doing? What were your influences? Um, my influences were probably primarily David Bowie. Marlena Dietrich and Madonna. Um, I think when I was with the band, I, I didn't have as much control over the image because there were obviously other people who I had to kind of include in the visual presentation. But I know when I moved to Berlin and I became the only person on stage, then I had much more control over my sort of artistic direction, and then my performances became a lot more theatrical. I mean, I'd always kind of been into costume changes because I just think they're great, um, but I know, you know, I would have performances in Berlin where maybe I would start off the show in a suit, and then gradually, you know, uh, elements of the suit would come off, and then by the end, there'd be, you know, some kind of skimpy dress underneath. But like each stage along the way was like a different outfit. Um, and you know, I would have props and video projections, so it became much more elaborate and theatrical. Oh, interesting. And so very much uh, troping the, the Dietrich persona exactly. in terms of the Absolutely. suit, yeah. I imagine. Yes, very yeah. much. Yeah. And in this case, <laughs> you obviously also made a decision that you were going to be the center of this physical presence, physical materiality, and the music was largely not going to be you'd in fact given in or given yourself over to... Um, the music was still very important, yeah. but what became less important was playing it live. 
um, because again, I was the only person on stage and I really wanted to do this very cabaret-influenced performance, which you obviously can't do if you're pushing buttons on a drum machine and playing a guitar. So I sort of made the conscious decision to sort of streamline the performance and have everything pre-recorded so that my hands were free to just, you know, perform. And what sorts of venues were they in the East Village uh, as opposed to Berlin? Um, in the East Village is very much dominated, I think, by boys with guitars. And so the, those were kind of the, the venues that were at hand. And my frustration with that is because, again, that's not the kind of music that I made. I wanted music that was much more, you know, visual and theatrical and um, kind of sensational. Uh, that was actually the time when I first started organizing events. And I was organizing events mainly to provide a context in which my band belonged. Because, I mean, you know, we played shows at Brownies and Arlene's Grocery and all the kind of typical places. Um, but it was like, you know, you didn't have the sense of like an, an experience of an evening. You know, it was like, oh, my friend's band is playing at 10. I'm going to show up at 9.45, watch my friend's band, and then leave. Uh, and that never really spoke to me. So I started organizing these sort of monthly nights where I would curate an art installation, bring in a DJ, you know, select the bands to kind of create this sort of cohesive evening that had visual style and spectacle. Mm. And this was in the East Village? This is, yes. What makes you decide to go to Berlin? Is it that you said, you, it sounds as though you were a bit sick of the East Village, but was it also a different artistic cultural milieu that you were looking for? Uh, there were a couple things. One was my band played a show in New York, and my guitar teacher came and said, You've got to go to Berlin, they're never going to get you here. And they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll understand what you're doing if you go to Berlin. And as I said, like, I'd, I'd kind of felt like I'd almost reached a glass ceiling of sorts in New York because the kind of music that I was making didn't really fit in with what was going on in the scene. So he said that and I organized a couple shows in Berlin and at first my band said they would come and then once I'd set up the shows they said they didn't want to. So I went by myself. Because wow. I was like, well I've already set up these shows, I'm not going to back so away. Instead of musical differences, this is continental and yes. organizational differences. Exactly. Um, and that's, so I, that's quite a challenge. Yeah, I was, and it, you know, it was totally terrifying. I'd never been on stage alone before, um, but I just felt like I'm not going to walk away from this. This is what I want. And so I went to Berlin and just fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the fact that in, in Berlin, they love the visual style. They love the campy costumes. They love the spectacle, you know? And so I felt like, you know, these are my people. This is, they understand what I'm trying to do. So that was a huge incentive. And then also the fact that the, the cost of living is so much lower in Berlin meant that I could full time be an artist and musician rather than having my corporate day job and then squeezing you know, it into nights and weekends. And I felt like I, at some point in my life I want to be a full-time artist. And I couldn't think of a better time to do it than in my mid-twenties. And so that's really what you know, brought me over there. So this is sort of 2003? I moved two? there, to, I was there 2003 to 2006. 2003 to 2006. Yep. I, in addition to, I guess, writing music yes. and writing scripts, you no, no scripts. No scripts. No scripts. Never done a screenplay. Probably the one person in LA that hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but what I mean is writing scripts for yourself for the performances. Oh, got it. Yeah. Um, then there were no scripts for that. It was all in my head. Wow. When do you start writing as in writing books? I started writing books when I was still living in New York. Oh, uh, wow. It was my last year in New York, I think. Oh, well, no, that's not true, actually. My first, my first book, a novel, I wrote... Um, right after I moved to New York. So that was in sort of 98, 99, 2000. I wrote my first book, which is a novel um, about the sex industry in New York. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, if you, if you look at all the different things that I've done over the last 10 or 15 years, it might seem on the surface as if they don't make sense because they're sort of all over the place. But really, if you look at it, you can see there's a very clear line. I've always been sort of interested in people that are, you know, pushing limits, um, reevaluating boundaries. And I was interested in the way that people in the sex industry were blurring, you know, the public and the private, and this idea of sort of these, you know, strong sexual women who were sort of defying cultural expectations. Um, so that was my first book. And then I started writing short stories uh, shortly before I left, like that last year before yes. I left New York. Can people read the sex industry novel? That one never got published in America, sadly. It, um, it got published in Germany uh, through Random House, but it's only available in German. Oh. So if they know German, it's on Amazon. What's its title? Uh, Lover Girl. 
Lover Girl. And it's, the title is in English, is it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Now, did you translate it or did somebody No, somebody translated it. Yeah, my German skills were not that good. Wow. Cool. Yeah. But it was translated by the same person that translated Jenna Jameson's How to Make Love Like a Porn Star. <laughs> so that was kind of a claim to fame, which was published now, with the same imprint. There's a name we don't hear very often now. I know. I don't know what, what she's up to these days. I always thought there was trouble in the marriage myself. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. He seemed like such a freak. Are you talking about Tito or the guy before? Oh, whoops. Yeah. Because the guy before it ended. And then she, she was with Tito for a while, and I don't even know what's going on now. There was the I last I caught up with her, which would be about five years ago, okay. maybe more. She had the thing where she would only do pornography with other women. Right, do exactly. Porn movies with other women. Right. And, or she would, I don't know, but there would only be penetrative sex with her husband exactly. amongst men. Right. That's what I Yeah, remember. they separated. Okay. That's the last thing I remember about right. her, to be honest. Maybe she had a reality show at some point. I don't know. I sort of stopped But I, I'm really watching. out of the loop. Yeah. Anyway, so, and around that time, Random House was bought by a German publisher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. It'd oh, be interesting. interesting to know when that happened, because I used to hang out with Random House editors in New York, and when they got taken over by the Germans around that time, we had such parties, because uh, we'd go to bars, and then very late at night, when it was time to pay, they'd look at one another, they'd look at me, and they'd say, the Germans are paying. <laughs> But sadly, then the Germans started firing them after the oh, no. recession in 2001 when there weren't huh. enough cookbooks making money. Right. And so we had to pay for Drinks. our time out. Oh, Bad. that's horrible. I know. Bad random house. Mm. In any event, so that comes out in, in Germany with a major press. Yes, that came out, um, I think, in 2006. I have a horrible sense of time. But around 2006. It actually it came out once I'd already left for L.A. Because, you LA. know, publishing, it takes a while. But you're, when you're in, uh, still in New York, you're writing short stories. I started well. writing short stories my last year in New York. And what sorts of themes did they? Um, again, it's, it's funny because I feel like I feel like I'm just so predictable with my interests are. I may express okay. them in different ways, but you know, I've always been interested in, in, in people uh, and sort of what happens when people are at their most real and authentic. Um, and so what drew me to erotica was I was interested in, you know, what happens when people aren't putting on pretense? What happens when people are sort of the most themselves and fear and desire is sort of most exposed? Um, and that's what kind of interested me about it. It was, you know, almost like a, a sociological study, you know, of like, okay, what happens when I take this kind of person and this kind of person and put them together? When abjection and resource exactly. remove all the clothing. Right. And uh, mechanisms of defense. Mm-hmm. Dangerous things. No wonder the fire department is <laughs> reaching down the street, if indeed it is the fire department. It is. People who listen to this podcast regularly must think that there is nothing in the LA oral ambience apart from sirens. <laughs> Um, but those, the two collections of short stories are available in English. Those are published and can be found on Amazon. Uh, the first one was put out by HarperCollins and is called Seduce Me. Uh, and then the second one was called I've Been a Naughty Girl and came out with Ravenous Romance. And they're both uh, on Amazon. Now, I love both titles. <laughs> I can't work out whether I prefer Seduce Me or I've Been a Naughty Girl. <laughs> but... Again, they're troping, yes. obviously, a conventional heterosexuality and presumably problematizing it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about those collections, could you? Um, so again, this is like going back to the archives. Um, sure. But, you know, as I said, it was just sort of trying to tap into, uh, you know, issues that were sexual issues that were happening, I've, you know, with... Um, None of the stories are told from the point of view of a man. They're all told from the point of view of a woman. Uh, some of them are told are heterosexual dynamics. Some of them are homosexual dynamics. Um, but just kind of trying to sort of explore the spectrum, again, of sort of you know this uh, authentic emotion and desire and um, power play. And you know, I have one of my favorite stories um, is told from the point of view of two different people. So you, you read one scenario from his perspective, and then you read the same scenario from her perspective. 
and it kind of cuts back and forth throughout the whole story and it's really fascinating because he thinks he's in charge and she thinks she's in charge and so because you see it from inside both of their heads you sort of understand um, the sort of the different perspectives so this is your attempt to be Ovid in Metamorphosis. Yes, exactly, although I would never say that. Well, I think he ultimately concludes that sex is better for women if, you know, Ketterus Paribus, other things being equal. Interesting. I think that's what dear old Ovid comes up mm. with. Okay, and, and so you're writing all this stuff in New York, but it no, appears started, when you're in Germany. I when started when I was in New York, right. and I, um, I probably wrote my last year in New York. And then I continued when I was in Berlin. What was it like in terms of the influences on you at those times? What were the differences when it came to thinking about male-female relations, female-female relations, female sexuality in one cultural context as opposed to another? That's a good question. Um, I feel like in Berlin maybe there was a little bit more freedom because most Berliners are not locked into the sort of corporate culture, uh, which I think dominates New York uh, and sort of New York interpersonal dynamics. I don't know if it was something that I tapped into on a conscious level, but it was probably around on a subconscious level. I think in Ber the stories I wrote in Berlin were maybe centered more about you know uh, cafes and airports and sort of these uh, unconventional locations, whereas in New York, I think it was more... Grubby office sex. Grubby office urban living, I would say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know in the, the, uh, the Naughty Girl collection, I have a story, a friend of mine challenged me to write an entire short story that was told exclusively via text message. And so I wrote this uh, very sexy story that is, it's literally all it is is text message dialogue between the two people. Mm. And I don't know if I would have engaged with that in New York. But in Berlin, again, I think there's more freedom and possibility. There's also the fantasy of the U.S. girl who goes to Do Berlin. Do hot water? Oh, yes, I'd love okay, some. Okay, I'll be back. Thank you, no hurry. U.S. girl who goes to Berlin and discovers herself and can right. be freer than elsewhere. Right. I say this because one of my ex-wives did that. <laughs> Uh, and uh, had the, very much the experience of Berlin, I think, that you did. Right. At around probably the same age. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a bit earlier in, in time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe eight or nine years before you did. But right. very much that sort of experience. And one thinks of not just women, but men too. So many US writers think of African Americans uh, moving to Paris. Uh, right. and finding that this could, they could be something. Yes. And not just US people think of David Bowie, who mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Uh, going to Berlin and producing Low mm -hmm. uh, and Heroes. Right. I guess certain heroes, maybe Low as well. Low too, yeah, sure. By the way, I just saw today two emails about a conference in Britain that's upcoming for the 40th anniversary, an academic conference of the release of Changes. Oh, um, wow. That's <laughs> exciting. Yeah, on, on Bowie. Are you going to go? Uh, no, I, I'm afraid, I, I don't think that, oh, thank you very much. I think they're, they're re-releasing Ziggy Stardust, too. Really? Yeah. God, he can never escape, can he? Oh, there's something about popular music, as broadly defined, that I find fascinating when written about in, as journalism. Right. And most of the time, fundamentally uninteresting when written about academically. Right. And I think it's because That's so often point. the musical form is so short that it just doesn't give itself over to the textual analysis that lasts a chapter. I don't, know if I don't know what it is. I don't think that it's short. I think that there's a richness and a complexity that maybe um, doesn't isn't conveyed through sort of typical academic approaches. It, that maybe that's it. I just don't know, but you know, I'd, I I would rather read a popular biography of Frank Sinatra than go to a scholarly conference. I'd rather read journalists bitching about Morrissey than right. read the Morrissey books. Right. I'd rather, uh, big time, I guess, read Nick Cohn, a wop-bop-a-loo-bop-a-lop, Van right. Boom, rock from the beginning, than anything scholastic about the 1950s and 60s. Which makes me even more intrigued to send you my book and see what you think because that's something that I sort of tried to actively engage with because, you know, you're writing about a movie, which I think you have the same similar problems as you do with a song, and how do you capture 
you know, the essence, the campiness, the visual sensation of a movie. But I do think there's a, a difference book. when you've got the longer form. Right. That's the thing. You see, you've got 90 odd minutes. Yeah. You've, thank you very much. You've got a visual track and an oral track. Right. You've got extremely famous, well known people to write about in a variety of different fields. Right. You've got a highly elaborated semiotic form. Right. That, like a novel, has so many different aspects and methods of semiosis in it. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to downplay poppy music at all. It's a crucial part no, no, of my totally. life. No, no, totally. And I think it's just as rich as you imply. It's right. Just that it's, I think it's tough to make meaning of other than in a laboured and dull way. I agree. Academically. And I don't think it's because people doing it are stupid. No, 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 no. I, I, I agree. Mm, that's it. Yeah. So... Okay, so a lot of this is going on in Berlin. It's very exciting. You yes. feel as though there are all these possibilities for you, intellectually, personally, professionally. You yes. can really concentrate on your art. Right. How does your art change, do you think, during that period, as you become more used to being the solitary woman on stage rather than the front person in a male-dominated band? Um, it changed drastically. Um, I think it changed drastically for a couple different reasons. One was I was the only one in charge, so I didn't have to compromise uh, my ideas for anybody else. You know, I could do whatever I wanted and nobody said, ah, tone it down. You know, in New York, my band was always telling me to tone it down. My band, I think, secretly wanted to be an indie rock band with uh, tight jeans and Converse sneakers and dirty t-shirts. Uh, and the only time they talked to women was when they picked them up <laughs> after the concert, right? Uh, I don't even know if any women were getting picked up. Um, so I think, you know, to me it was like this sort of uh, the freedom of being able to wear these outrageous outfits and have nobody tell me, you know, not to do that. You mean dressing in a suit and then gradually disrobing? Yeah, but I mean, I also, you know, I mean, one of my favorite things to do would be to design, um, you know, because you don't, you don't want to repeat an outfit. Uh, God, heaven forbid. So, you know, or like, you know, you're planning it, you know, I'm planning a tour, so now I'm going to Italy for a week or whatever to play a bunch of shows. And it's like, okay, what's going to be the visual concept for this tour? What am I going to wear? And then sort of, you know, putting the outfit together and buying the different pieces and maybe sewing things and, you know, creating this visual identity. So that was always really fun. Um, and I think also just a virtue of having three years to focus full time on my art also kind of. Uh, incur I mean, you know, you do anything full time for three years, it's going to evolve in an organic fashion and hopefully get stronger and um, your message is going to become more clear. And so over the time was when I started adding, you know, the video projections and it just became more and more of a spectacle and more of this kind of rich piece. Were there other women in Berlin whom you met and communed with who were interested in anything from burlesque to the sex industry to performances troping femininity? Uh, there were definitely some. You know, I, I had a sort of a core group of people who I hold, uh, I still hold very dear, um, who were very supportive and inspirational to me. But one of the things that really surprised me about Berlin, because you would think it would be the opposite, is that the music scene in New York was actually far more inclusive and helpful and supportive than the one in Berlin. So in New York, for instance, it was very, very common. As I said, I would organize these nights where I would book other bands to play on the same bill as mine, and then some other band would, or, you know, would invite my band to play on the same bill as theirs. And it was very much a kind of, you know, we're in this together vibe. Uh, I ran this website for a while called Rocker Chick that was um, designed to create a network for female musicians uh, you know, that met with a really positive response. And in Berlin, I really didn't feel that. I didn't feel that that sense of community among other musicians. Is that why you left? Um, that's a good question. I don't. There were a variety of factors. Mm -hmm. um, I I kind of felt like I wanted to go to grad school, and I felt like I didn't want to wait till I was forty. Um, so that was a major reason. But I know that you know the isolation got uh, got tedious. Yeah. I you know, I was doing everything alone. Were you? Yeah. Oh, in performance terms. Um, I mean, I you know I was a one man operation. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing all my you know I was performing alone. I was touring alone. I was doing bookings alone. I was promoting alone. Um, and it, you know, and that after a while, I got tired of just living in my head, and I wanted a sense of community. A network. 
Yeah. What made you choose Los Angeles? Uh, the gra- it was actually funny because I thought I was never coming back to the U.S. I thought I was I was done with all I'm that. I'm telling you, all women yeah. from the U.S. who moved to Berlin think they're never going back to the U.S. Well, but, you know, it was the Bush years, and I was just like, oh, America's oh, disgusting. Disgusting, yeah. And, um, <laughs> I I transplanted all my belongings to Europe. Had you? Yeah, and yes. so I just felt like this is where I'm going to be. And I was looking at graduate. I mean, I obviously wanted a graduate program in English, uh, in the English language. Um, and I was looking at graduate programs in England uh, and trying to find one that was a, a mix of the things I was interested in. So I didn't want a typical, I didn't want an MFA in writing, and I didn't want a typical master's in English. Uh, I wanted something that somehow combined my various interests in film, art, and cultural studies. And through a professor that I'd had as an undergrad, I found out about this program at Art Center uh, in Pasadena that really combined all these different interests of mine and that's what brought me out here, was that specific program. Yes, and I think actually the first time we ever met, you told me that. Yes. So, what was it like? I don't want you to criticize a local institution uh, uh, if you have negative things, but I want you to say whatever you want to say. Um, it was, it was an, a definitely a, a learning experience, and uh, <laughs> I, I learned... It sounds like Mitt Romney talking about tax returns. <laughs> Um, 13%. Uh, I I learned a lot. I mean, you know, it was a little bit of a bumpy ride. You know, I hadn't been an undergrad in basically 10 years. And so just being back in school was a little bit, you know, especially after, you know, working in the corporate world and being a full-time artist, it was sort of a a tricky shift to transition back into being a student and sitting in a classroom for four hours at a stretch. um, But one of the, the blessings and the curses of that graduate program was it was kind of unstructured. So there was a lot of freedom, which for some people, and at times myself, was frustrating because you know, you're there to learn and you want to be structured. But at the same time, it was um, useful for me because I'm very much like an independent thinker. And so I was kind of left to my own devices and I could, sort of, I could craft my own focus within the larger structure of the program. So I could kind of make this hodgepodge of my interests in film and cultural studies and art and kind of make my own way. And what about the performance world and the writing world here in LA? How did you find that? Um, I haven't really. (laughs) (laughs) Snap. Uh, (laughs) um, I mean, I'm... The, 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 the music nightlife scene in LA has never really spoken to me. I think it's, it's sort of a spin-off of the boys with guitars you get in New York. Um, and so I've, I've, just, I've, never, I've never kind of jumped into it. Uh, and the writing world, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge... I don't know. I, I never found my niche in it. Mm-hmm. But Maybe said, I'm not a team player. All that bourgeois individualist feminism... <laughs> right. First the corporate feminism and then the performance mm. feminism. Mm. So, you did say to me the other day that you have an extensive friendship network here, though. But that's uh, outside your art practice, is it? I don't even know if I'd say extensive. Um, I think LA is a, a tricky place in which to find your niche, period. You know, I mean, I, I pity anybody that moves here starting over. Um, you know, I moved here not really knowing anybody and my graduate program had five students in it. So I, I wasn't exactly tapping into a, an academic network through school. Um, and so it, it definitely is sort of an uphill battle to find your place. You know, you know, it's like in New York, you move to the East Village and you kind of, your apartment comes with your social life. You know, it's like your, your local bar is gonna be the one on the corner. Your favorite brunch place is gonna be the one next door to your local bar. I mean, it's like everything is sort of handed to you prepackaged. And in LA, for better and for worse, you really have to build your own um, scene. And so that's always been a little bit tricky because you know I'm, I'm not meeting people through school. Through my job, I meet 18-year-olds. So um, there's been a little bit of navigation happening to to build the network. Yeah. Okay. In terms of how your cultural practice is going, uh, obviously you've turned to a more academic form of writing. Yes. Excuse me, a quick question. Just interested, you have some food out on the ledge. Is that for a reason? Yeah, I just for want... luck. Please for luck. It. When it rains or all the time? All the time. All the time you put we, food we, out. We, we do it all every day. I saw you put the, put the things out there. I thought yeah. it might have been for a friend 
or an animal or homeless no, no. people, but it's for all those. It's a Thai categories. tradition. Thai tradition, is it? Okay. Yeah. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> I could have asked you. But I've just been, I saw her put these things out there. God, if I were a dog, I'd be here. Um, my my dog is head. often very interested in sniffing out the food, <laughs> yes. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so getting back to, to this story, in terms of your own cultural practice, cultural production here in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, so yes, I, I definitely made the, the sort of conscious, I think there were a couple elements. I mean, one I think is just the publishing industry sort of died. So uh, getting a, you know, fiction published has become an uphill battle that I sort of lost interest in fighting. And as I became a teacher, it sort of, I felt like it was more relevant to my immediate world to get into sort of academic cultural uh, analysis. Uh, and so that's really sort of what interests me now. I think I, I got bored um, with the fiction. Did you? Yeah, a little bit. So many academics write all this scholarly work and then decide what they really want to do. I know, I'm the opposite. But I think, but also I think my nonfiction is not typical academic nonfiction. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, uh, again, I love the pop culture analysis, so I think there's a, there's a playfulness that you might not find in, in typical academia. So are you in some way engaging in some mimesis of the text you're analyzing? Yes. Um, yeah. You're channeling its address. Hopefully. I don't know. You'll have to let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the idea. Now, we've got about three or four minutes left. Okay. What's next for you? What do you see happening after this, once the rain stops? Um, what's next for me today or in terms of my writing career? Oh, I think both. Okay, You've well... four minutes, that should be enough. Okay. Um, Friday afternoons, uh, I actually have a lovely group of friends that I practice yoga with in Pasadena, uh, which is sort of one of the highlights of both my day and my week. Uh, and I've sort of... After I felt like I had enough teaching seniority that I could do it, I started blocking off Fridays. So I never teach on Fridays so that I can, I can always make sure to make it to my yoga practice with my friends. Um, and I, my friend that I go to lives in this gorgeous house in Pasadena and just turning onto his street, you feel like the stress of the week evaporates. Um, so that's gonna be happening directly after this interview. Um, and then I still have a couple books I wanna write. So I think as soon as, now I'm sort of in the process of recovery from finishing this recent one, um, trying to catch up on the to-do list that has been neglected for the last five months. So I'm sort of doing odds and ends, but then as soon as I've you know, caught up on my sleep and my productivity, then I'll move on to the next book. And the book that's coming out is with Intellect? With Intellect Books, and it's distributed by the University of Chicago Press. And it'll be out in about a year yes. from now. We're talking in mid-April 2012. 2013. There are, so or now it's, now it's It'll be out right. in the northern spring or summer of right. 2013. Yes. Some parts of the book have already been published or are being published. Yes, um, there is a kind of a, a small section that's online with Jump Cut, the film uh, magazine. Uh, Artillery magazine is going to have something online in June that's going to coincide with the retrospective that Cindy Sherman has up at MoMA right now. Um, the Museum of Modern Art. Yes, Museum of Modern Art in New York, yes. Uh, I wrote something um, that's in German uh, for this German magazine that I write for called Traffic about Cindy Sherman that you can also find online, but you'd have to speak German. But at Traffic News to Go is the full uh, website. And let's finish up with your telling us a little bit about these plans for the future in writing terms. Yes. Don't give away any big trade secrets now. Okay. Um, well, I, I have... Uh, it's just between us. I've already said the Armenian part of organized crime. <laughs> right. Can't go worse than that. Um, I have one of my best friends. I've always wanted to write a book with him. And so uh, we had started working on it right before I got the book deal for The Office Killer mm. and it got sort of shelved. But I want to write a sort of a, an inspirational slash self-help book for single women in their 20s and 30s. That's kind of like everything you wish your mother told you, but she didn't. Um, I how not to turn into her? Uh, I you know how to how to how to dress, how to feed yourself, what vitamins to take, how to do your hair, how to date, you know, advice on romance, friendship, all kinds of things like that. So really, just like a kind of like a full spectrum guide, like you know, you've graduated college, you're about to be on your own. Here's this book. 
So I want to do that with, um, a, with a friend. With a friend, yeah. Who I, someone that I actually worked with when I worked for L'Oreal, and so we've been kind of talking about wanting to do a book for a while, and then finally the hopefully the forces will coincide so we can do that next. Fantastic. Thank you. That is incredibly useful. Could you write one for men in their fifties? <laughs> Maybe that'll be the sequel. Do their makeup. Well. Thank you very, very much for giving so much of your time today and sharing a great deal about what is uh, a fantastic career. That website of yours is incredibly good. People I don't know, are you sure you've been this. there recently? Yeah, I was there. Okay, it's very streamlined. Yeah, very streamlined. Okay. It's clean, there's no, yes. no messing about. Right. And people can get links to your publications there, yeah. for example. Mm -hmm. And I. As I said earlier, I hope that you'll come back and talk to us again when your book with intellect appears. I would love to. Fantastic. Many thanks.